Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. How is the world faring against the fight with COVID-19? Well, we'll talk with Dr. Rodney Rohde from Texas State University and Dr. Bart Harvey, the Associate Medical Officer of Health here in the city of Hamilton, to find out. And when it comes to an emergency, are the provinces more powerful than the federal government? David Aiken, the Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, joins us to dive into that. And many people have reached out to us here at CHML with concerns and questions about COVID-19 and the workplace. We'll get into that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. So how are we faring against the COVID-19? As we say, the numbers are continuing to rise uh, in all places but China, as a matter of fact, where they seem to have finally gotten a handle on that. Can we learn from that? And what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong as we as individuals, uh, as we continue to live our lives and at the same time uh, be cognizant of the impact that, uh, that COVID-19 could have on a, an entire community, let alone in our household. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Rodney Rohde. Dr. Rohde, of course, is a professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professionals at Texas State University. And uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you back on the program today. Hey, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. What a week, right? It's been a hell of a week to look at the numbers and the things that have gone on. i got to tell you, one of the things that troubles me, and I know you've seen these pictures, uh, first of all, there were the people on March breakdown on the beaches in Florida, uh, and then this past weekend, notwithstanding the fact that there's essentially a lockdown order in California right now, everybody was out on the beaches once again. What part of of uh, self-distancing do these people not get? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I was actually going to start with that when you before you even called me. One of the things I've been worried about a little bit is the Florida uh, uh, episode, especially because I think what we're really going to have to watch for epidemiologically is in the coming probably two, maybe three weeks, uh, based on what we think is the incubation period of that, of all of those young people that were out mixing and, and playing together, if they're going to be spreaders now. So even if things settle down in the U.S. Uh, with respect to maybe case numbers kind of starting to kind of plateau, we could see another little hop uh, in the coming coming weeks, I'm afraid, unless unless we're very lucky. It, it raises the question, though, as to whether or not we as a, as a, a community, as a global community, understand uh, just how important this is and how desperate uh, people can be to try to avoid this sort of thing. And, and we've just talked right. about the two incidences in California. There's other examples. I mean, we had a relatively nice weather weekend up here, too, and uh, there were people walking together, jogging together. Uh, conver- that, that's not supposed to be the way. Th- it's, this is not normal. This is, this is supposed to be the new normal, and I'm not so sure that people even understand that. Yeah, I agree. I'm not sure still if people are, especially certain groups of people age-wise, if they're really getting the idea that they can spread the virus and even not even have symptoms. So I think it's still an education and a kind of an urgency message. I think we're starting to push that in the U.S., but at some point, you know, a person has to understand and learn that uh, and listen to the information and kind of follow it. I mean, it's kind of like being a professor in a classroom. You can do everything you can to get people to do the assignments, but at some level, the person has to have some accountability for that, unless you're going to go on full, you know, uh, some type of uh, fining or police involvement or things like that. So that shall remain to be seen, I suppose. 
not pointing fingers, but I mean, I, I get flummoxed every time I see, because all the world leaders, our prime minister up here, and of course the president and vice president uh, make daily briefings now to try to bring us up to speed on what's happening. And every time we switch over to there and I see the president at the podium there and the vice president and uh, there's Dr. Fauci right there beside him, they're all standing shoulder to shoulder. And I said, whoa, 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 yeah. you're the ones, the guys that are preaching self, yeah. self just Come on, guys, practice what you preach. Amen, amen. In the day and age of, like, there's no reason to do that, especially when you think about the ages of all those individuals up there on the stage together. I thought of that as well. Um, certainly they could spread out uh, in one room and do that. I mean, in and I think that's a whole other concern, obviously, when you start thinking about leadership across any country, is if you have someone, you know, we've had a senator now come down with it, and we've had some other people um, in public office show positivity. And, and I'm not real concerned about that with respect to what I think can happen medically. I think we'll be on top of that. But the perception by the public of anyone that's in a leadership position that's suddenly very ill is going to be a problem. Do we know more about this? Obviously, there's research going on all over the world uh, to try to find a, a vaccine for this. But at the same time, I guess trying to study this, have we, have we, as we've tracked this over the last couple of weeks, uh, Doctor? Is, is there characteristics of this thing that we've we've picked up that we didn't know a couple of weeks ago? You know, I think what's caught a number of people by surprise. Just a couple of things, if I can take a moment here. Sure, sure. I think I think a couple of things that have caught caught us by surprise a little bit is the um, the spreading by younger people, even down into the teenage years uh, and very very showing very little symptoms or, or very little illness and still spreading that virus. I think I've read some reports now of even younger children having the, um, the actual infection and not even showing symptoms, but they're positive. That's, that's a little worrisome that you might have basically vectors of the disease that seem well. That's, that's a problem. So that'll be something we need to watch. The, 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 Pieces around treatment and vaccines, I mean, I'm very hopeful that a vaccine will get produced and, and quickly as possible. Of course, you know that has to go through a, a number of accuracy and quality checks and clinical trials and all the things that we want to maintain about vaccination. But hopefully that'll come around, you know, within a year or so. I'm not sure it'll be more rapid than that. What I'm more hopeful about is some of the different um, antivirals and different uh, meds that they're starting to look at in combination, like chloroquine, which is used for malaria, and being used with um, some other antibiotics that may, and antibi antivirals that may actually slow down or reduce the the uh, fatality rates of this. So that is something we can do in a very quick way, in a very rapid way. The other major concern, I think, for everyone, but certainly here in the U.S., that I'm worried about is our healthcare professionals. Uh, we are really I think struggling with fatigue and just anxiety, you know, and that's part of your physical fatigue as well. And then everybody's so concerned about PPE. So we are, even here at Texas State, we are starting to look through our inventory because we're not teaching anymore. And there are programs all over this country that have gloves and masks and things that we can donate back to our clinical affiliates where our students typically do their clinical rotations. So hoping we can help bridge the gap if you will, with supplies until, you know, more things are produced and, and distributed out to those hospitals. I, I know what you're saying about the healthcare professionals, and it's obviously it's a, a concern right across the globe. I saw last week that the U.K., now that they're seeing their numbers spike, basically are getting in touch with retired nurses and doctors and That's said, right. we got to get you back here, guys. It's all hands That's on deck right. now, isn't it? Absolutely. And in fact, yesterday in Texas, Governor Abbott basically waived 
kind of fast track the ability for graduated nurses that haven't actually finished their NCLEX exam, they're actually nursing license, to be able to work at least with supervision uh, and then bringing back retired nurses uh, and things like that. So trying to shore up the, the troops, if you will, with people that can handle that type of work. And, and I think I've talked to you about this before, but even in my world, so I really want to talk a little bit about my world of the medical laboratory. Mm-hmm. Uh, these professionals are certified. You know, these are degreed people that we often don't see in the public's eye. You just don't see your medical laboratory professional that are behind the doors doing all your testing. And so these people are also, we have worse shortages than nurses. And so I really want the public to understand that this is a profession that has long screamed for more educational programs and more support to build this profession, to be known. So I'm hoping one of the good things that comes out of this nightmare is that we kind of focus a light on the need for more healthcare professionals in all areas. Politicians right across the board. Overnight. Yeah, politicians you just can't grow these. Things no, of overnight. course not. And and you you and your your teams are doing great work down there, uh, but it, it's an abstract, I guess, to most politicians. They just don't get it. Now all of a sudden that it's front and center. I think hopefully there's going to be a better understanding of the importance of, of what you're doing on a daily basis, not just to do with uh, with COVID nineteen, but going forward. I hope so. You know, part of it's education. I've been doing this for a decade now. I've been you know screaming about this. For, for medical lab and then for public health and medical lab for almost 30 years. And I think what people, even people don't understand is that when you order a lab test, so let's say, Bill, you go in and you have a, a concern and they're going to order a COVID test for you. What typically is also, also going to happen is it's not just one test. So a doctor and a nurse, when they have a patient, that's a one-to-one situation. But one patient for the lab is like 10 to 20 tests. So it's, an, it's a log rhythmic amplifier. So if we have 10 patients, we probably have 150 tests we're running for those 10 patients because doctors don't just order the COVID test. <laughs> They're ordering CBCs and, and other types of, of complex testing that's going to take some time. So it's, it's challenging, you know, when you get that ramping up, uh, not just in the front lines, but also in the kind of behind the lines with the laboratory. Is there a consensus now, Doctor, about how long this is going to be with us? I know there were some people initially when it started to, to spread, kind of whistling past the graveyard and said, oh, you know what, when the warm weather comes, this will probably just die off like ordinary flu. I think most of us, I think, have a better understanding that this is this is going to be here for a long time to come. Yeah, I, I totally, I mean, I think everyone was hoping that it would be a cyclical mm-hmm. kind of flu-like illness, but I, I early on definitely didn't have a lot of hope in that, mainly for one reason, Bill, and that's because it has never come through the population, not even once. So this is the first time through that we're aware of. So there is absolutely no immunity. And so if you can imagine kind of a wildfire, you know, where you have fires kind of jumping out of that one major fire, you know, every time there's a new case, if it's a naive population in a new county or a new a new state or a new region, then you've got the potential for another kind of mini outbreak in that region. So I have a feeling this is going to be cranking at least through April, May, you know, and maybe even early summer. I hope I'm wrong, but I would not be surprised to see us dealing with this in the coming couple of months for sure. And then let's hope it starts uh, reaching some, some hurdles of immunity in the population and starts backing down in the summer. With that in mind, uh, one of the other questions we're getting a lot, and I'm sure you are too, Doctor, is, is how long is this social distancing going to go on for? I mean, you know, before we can go to a baseball game, for instance, or, you know, right. get the basketball playoffs underway, some people are still looking at that as a goal. I know it's secondary, but at the same time, 
Uh, the fact that those things would be allowed to happen again to us would be a barometer. That, hey, maybe the worst is over. Maybe it's okay to come out again. Uh, we're certainly not there yet, but uh, I've read some rather dire predictions that said uh, it may not be till November, December. Yeah, Lord help us if it's that long. I think people are going to be so psychologically depressed uh, if we push it out that far. But, I mean, what we've got to think about is the end game. So if we go too soon, if we pull that trigger, you know, obviously the Olympics now is looking at this too. That's probably the hugest concern I have as far as sporting events goes. Mm-hmm. But, you, you know, I just it's, – it's going to be tough to pull that trigger too soon because what you probably heard too is this, this – concern about a second wave so you pull that trigger when it plateaus and everybody's kind of seems to be stabilized and then you get some carriers you know these asymptomatic people that start traveling again and start going to large events you could see another kind of resurgence and that you know it's i hate to be that person to make that decision because i think either way it's going to be a, a tough thing for people to handle mentally whether you you know you thought it was over and then it's back or whether you just have to wait for six more months. I think both scenarios are going to weigh on people psychologically. Well, what I've been telling friends and family is that, you know, this is this is for the good to try to get the economy and everybody back as soon as possible. So if you do it kind of hardcore now, the sooner this might end. Yeah, it's it's tough medicine. I, I, it goes back. It, to, really I guess, is. it goes back to the first part of our conversation here with all these people that were out on the beaches again this weekend, uh, in in the warm weather climates, uh, or just going for walks and in, in pairs and triples and doing that sort of thing. Is uh, we want the the worst to be over, but the longer I guess we got to take the tough medicine now, and hopefully that's going to uh, uh, well flatten the curve, which is what we've been talking about from day one here. Absolutely, you know, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure, so that kind of holds true in all public health emergencies and. And when you talk about those outdoor things, you know, I've even, I love to exercise too, but even me and my wife, we just kind of walk on the opposite sides of the street, even though we live together, you know? So I think if people are living together and you know, you have a house full of people that are relatively have been uh, symptomless, like not showing any kind of symptoms for maybe, you know, a week or two, then, you know, it's probably not as concerning to me, but what is concerning is when you have groups of people that are from different homes and they're still getting together. Right. So I'm back at work today. I'm a college professor and we only have critical people here in the office. And I'm basically I've got my door, office door shut. I'm talking to you. I mean, you can work uh, in ways that are not endangering people. You know, so people just need to think about that with respect to how they're handling that. And I understand we're all, you know, dealing with this in our own way mentally. But there are ways to still interact through phones and computers and you know, within 10 or so feet of each other, you can still see people and talk to people. You just can't get right up in their face. Always reassuring to get uh, your expert advice on this, uh, Doctor. Thank you so much for this. And, and thanks, by the way, for the great work that you do all the time, of course. And uh, uh, it's, it's that kind of research that's uh, eventually going to tackle this thing and uh, get us back to that normal that we keep looking for. We'll uh, certainly stay in touch as this goes on. Thanks again for today, though. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. And y'all have a great week and stay safe, Bill. You too. Dr. Rodney Rohde, of course, from uh, Texas State University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As uh, we continue uh, looking at the numbers, uh, we also want to check in and see what's happening locally uh, with uh, how the city and uh, everyone in this community, of course, is dealing uh, with what's going on over the last little while with the coronavirus and COVID-19. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Uh, Bart Harvey, who is the Associate Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Doctor, thank you so much for your time and a very busy day. Appreciate you jumping in here today. 
My pleasure, Bill. Always nice to talk with you. Well, a little frustrating as, as I drove around a little bit. Didn't go out much this weekend. We had a couple of trips we had to make. And uh, uh, this, it's the number of people who are, are, are socializing, I mean, that's what it comes down to. I mean, it's one thing to say yesterday was a nice sunny day here in Hamilton. Let's go for a walk. But that doesn't mean go for a walk with five other people. Uh, we don't seem to be getting the message about social distancing very well. Well, um, you know, the, the message is out there. I think some people... It's, uh, you know, whether I'll call it denial. I mean, I think we're getting the message through. I think um, I'll, I'll look at it the flip side, Bill. If I look at um, how busy and regular things have used to be a month ago, and I compare to what they are now, I would submit they're dramatically different. So I wouldn't want the best to become the enemy of the better. I think we are social distancing. I think that the, the number and type and proximity of, of human interactions has, has dropped dramatically. And as you know, when we've talked before, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, job one is how do we decrease the, the ability of this virus to transmit from mm-hmm. one person to another? Mm-hmm. So getting people to um, keep their distance, sometimes the, the clumps of folks the reality is they've been in close proximity for a fair bit. So it's, I think it's, the, it's folks being in close proximity with strangers, people that they haven't been in interaction with. So they really haven't, you know, it's that notion when kids come back after March break, they've all been to different places and then they all come together and they kind of share all the new things they got. So um, I, 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 you know, I think we're, we're, uh, I'm again. I'm pleased when I walk around. To some degree, it feels like a bit of a ghost town. So for uh, for me, that is a social being. It's a little bit different, and I think it's probably the same for others. But again, it's it's a key strategy in us trying to decrease the transmission of this virus. We're ultimately uh, we know we're not going to be perfect because we're still seeing new cases come in. But it's it's not the fact that cases are coming in. It's it's that notion of elongating and flattening the curve. How can we spread out all of those infections that will ultimately happen and have them happen over a long period of time rather than all in a short period of time so we uh, have as, as little impact on our healthcare system as possible and try to avoid as much as possible kind of totally overwhelming it. And and some of us, of course, you're absolutely right, are taking precautions and doing the right thing. And, you know, just because we saw a bunch of people on the shit oak stairs over the weekend, which I think was troubling, uh, the overwhelming majority think people are staying isolated, staying in their homes and and, and doing what they're supposed to be doing in situations like this. But we're we're still learning, though, aren't we, Doctor, about what this is all about? I know in the initial stages, you you mentioned to us about how this is actually uh, transported from one individual to another, and it's a respiratory thing, so it's obviously through coughing and sneezing and things of this nature, but... Uh, you know, people are being very cautious about what they touch, what they don't touch, uh, and and because we don't quite know how long the virus lasts. If, you know, if if you pick up a, a a can of something in a grocery store, who else has handled that, and were they infected? The, the uh, erring on the side of caution, I guess, is maybe the best advice here. Yeah, no, and and absolutely because, I mean, for this virus, what we now know is it's a lot like influenza. So there, we we refer to it as being droplet and contact. Spread. So the kind of droplet indicates that the um, the viral particles generally won't won't go further than about a meter, a meter and a half from one person to another. 
So that's why our kind of two-meter basis, if you're two meters away from somebody, they can be as infectious as possible, but that virus can't can't uh, traverse that distance. But also contact is really important. The, the scientists that have looked at this have said that, you know, given the right environmental circumstances, this virus could survive on a surface for up to nine days. So that'd be the, 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 the optimal environmental. But absolutely, I think probably, you know, contact is as big an issue. And that's why part of our messaging is, you know, clean down, uh, especially commonly used surfaces, as frequently as possible using hydrogen peroxide, diluted bleach, uh, alcohol products to, um, to sanitize those. And I would agree. I mean, when people come back from shopping or whatever, this the other message that we give to people. You know, wash your hands as frequently as possible with uh, warm water in case you happen to touch a surface where the virus Now wash your hands because that gets rid of it. And then one of our other key messages, as much as possible, try to keep your hands away from your face. Very difficult to do. We do it subconsciously because you've got three key mucous membranes or openings into our bodies that the virus loves, our mouth, our nose, and our eyes. So you put your hand down on a surface, you contaminate it with some virus, you put your hand up near your, your face and you get it near your eyes, your nose, or your mouth, you potentially have just inoculated yourself with the virus. It's easier said than done, though. You're absolutely right. I didn't realize how often I'd scratch or do whatever it is or adjust my glasses or whatever until you actually said, okay, now I'm conscious of it. Uh, it's it's great advice and, and the words that we need to live by in situations like this. And and I know that uh, it's difficult. Human behavior says that, look, I'm getting tired of being in the house all the time, but uh, boy, we've got to stick with it. And the, the, as you say, as soon as we can start to decrease these numbers, maybe we can start to see some normalcy. Uh, doctor, I want to stay in touch with you over the next little while as, as this continues. And maybe next time we'll have a discussion about how uh, we are in this community are handling this uh, with our own healthcare system and uh, looking at the numbers here locally. But I always appreciate you joining us here on the show to give us some advice on this. Thanks so much for this today. Bill, it's always great to talk to you. You have a good day, too. You, too. Uh, Dr. Bart Harvey, of course, Associate Medical Officer of Health here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, difficult times for all of us, I get that. And we've seen that with the, uh, if you've had to go to any store, grocery store, whatever the case might be, I mean, we still, you know, life goes on. We still have to eat. We still have to, to uh, get other items, other things. But uh, stores are taking extra precautions, of course. And, you know, the sanitizer, if they can find some, or the wipes, we've seen those in, in a lot of the stores these days, and that's always a good idea. Uh, and just as, as doctor said, uh, you know, if you go into a store and you touch something, uh, make sure that you wiped it. That's you got to stay clean. That's all there is to it. And wash your hands. Can't say that enough. Every doctor we've talked to has said you can't wash your hands too often. That's where the germs are going to be. That's the, the, the transmission area. So uh, make sure we do that as well. Uh, from the political side of things, of course, we've been watching our leaders on both sides of the border uh, with daily statements about what's going to be going on and what they are doing to try to alleviate some of the, the concerns and pressures uh, health-wise and economically here in this country. We know that tomorrow, of course, Parliament will resume uh, to pass some legislation, but there's a discussion going on right now about federal versus provincial responsibilities, about who should be carrying the ball here. And uh, are the provinces more powerful than the federal government when it comes to emergencies like this? David Aiken is the chief political correspondent with Global News, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about this morning. David, how are you doing today? I'm, like everybody else, washing my hands, like Bill, and sitting in my home office and 
trying to report on the news. Yeah. You always say, how are you feeling today? And that usually is just kind of a, a, a conversation opener. Now it's yeah. in, said, in sincerity. How are you feeling? Everything seems uh, to be okay. Everything's good in our household. Good to know. As I say, taking good, all those. Yeah. Good to know. David, interesting concept about this, and I know that's a debate that's going on both in the States hmm. and here in Canada about responsibilities, about who should be doing what. And I know here in Ontario, for instance, uh, we've seen our provincial government, our premier, taking a pretty aggressive stand on this. Uh, some suggesting that maybe uh, the prime minister should be taking uh, uh, some advice from from some of the other premiers about how aggressive they should be on this. Where where is that line of responsibility? Well, well and in fact, there is going to be a conference call later today with uh, Premier Ford, all the other premiers, and the prime minister. I assume uh, to talk about coordination. I think that's really the big role for the federal government to play. But you know, the prime minister he's having these daily press conferences. He'll have another one today at eleven o'clock. You know, getting asked, why don't you invoke the Federal Emergencies Act? That's what the federal uh, program is called. It's called the Emergencies Act. It's never, ever been invoked. Uh, came into existence in 1988, and it replaced the War Measures Act, which, mm-hmm. of course, everybody remembered was invoked back in 1970 by dad, uh, Pierre. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, Bill, that I don't think a lot of people understand. The provinces, and our province and every province, has already declared a state of emergency, and every province has some unbelievable powers. They have what what I'll call a blank check clause in, you know, what sort of powers they can they can list. Uh, the Ontario one, I've got it right in front of me, says, you know, Cabinet can, quote-unquote, take such actions or implement such measures as Cabinet considers necessary in order to blah, 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 manage this emergency. In other words, it does list a few things you'd expect, you know, prohibit travel and uh, fix good, fixed prices of goods and services. But then there's a blank check. You can do anything. Premier Ford, whatever it takes. When he says, and he often says it, I'm going to do whatever it takes, he literally has that legal power. The federal government does not. There is no, quote, blank check clause in the federal act. There's a very specific list of nine things, all of which overlap with powers Ontario and B.C. and Manitoba already have, but there's no blank check clause. It's a very limited uh, act in that sense, a closed list. Here's something else. The federal government is prohibited, even if it declares an emergency, from taking control of any police force, such as the OPP or the city of Hamilton's police force. That remains the control of the municipality or the province. The big role, of course, for the federal government is money. And that, I think, is the big thing right now that people probably want to clear up. Provinces are going to control people, ban people from moving, uh, you know, do what they can't do what they can in that sense. The federal government really, it's the, it's the bank. And there is already a lot of pressure from businesses. I'm sure we're going to see that tomorrow when you know, we have this little House of Commons sessions. Uh, you know, a lot of people in Ottawa are saying, look at Denmark. Denmark is covering the wages of 75% of the wages of employees in small businesses that are hurting. Why aren't we doing something like that? So that's really where it goes, is the federal government does have some big power. It's mostly the pocketbook power. The provinces already have a lot of the quote-unquote martial law kind of power that just and that's let me use that back up on that phrase bill because in canada there is no such thing as martial law there's no conception there's no you know we'll let the army run things other countries have that canada does not i i think part of the the discrepancy here is of course for those of us that do remember the war measures act back in 1970 uh we did see army and tanks uh, on mm-hmm. the streets in ottawa but that was that was a different set that was not a health crisis that was obviously a terrorist threat with the FRQ. yeah yeah, and, and, and the federal government does, so the Federal Act talks about a public welfare emergency, and obviously that's what we're in right now. So so that would be what the government, or what, what the federal government, if it does invoke it, is invoking the public welfare emergency. A couple other things, if it does that, it's got to do it in consultation with the provinces. And 
it's the, the way the act is written is really the Federal Emergencies Act would be invoked if a province said, that's it, we're overwhelmed. We, we, need, we can't manage this anymore. I don't think Ontario is likely to get to that point, but you could see a province like New Brunswick, which is smaller, uh, doesn't have as much uh, funding, uh, saying to the federal government, help. Uh, and, then, and then who knows what. And here's where a federal government might take some steps. Mayor, with or without the Emergencies Act, let's say, let's say all the beds in Ontario we're in use, and we know we've seen some guidelines where we could run out of beds if this thing keeps ramping up in mm-hmm. April. Um, and let's say there's beds open in Manitoba. Well, the federal government can say, right, despite, I know, provincial health care and all that, but we are ordering that some patients in Ontario are going to go be treated in Manitoba or in Quebec or whatever. A federal government can do that. Here's another, here's another thing people don't think about. Our, uh, right now, we have a shortage of meat, federal meat inspectors, in meatpacking plants in Ontario. And what does that mean? That means that farmers who are ready to ship their hogs or their, their cattle to a meatpacking plant, they can't. And meatpacking plants, which are ready and raring to go, can't. Why? Just because of federal meat inspectors. So why couldn't we have provincial inspectors take over or inspectors from another province? Um, there's rules about uh, meat packed in Ontario at a provincially inspected plant can only be sold in Ontario. Well, why couldn't that be sold in Manitoba if a Manitoba plan had to be quarantined? That's a role for the federal government likely to step in and say, right, some of these interprovincial trade barriers don't make sense in an emergency like this, and we're going to knock them down. So that's, I think, the sorts of things that it's a little more detail. It's not as dramatic as, you know, we're going to shut down uh, this or that, but it's important stuff in emergency to make sure essential goods and services are getting around the country to wherever they're needed. And, and that's, I'm assuming, that is what the premiers and the prime minister are going to talk about today. But you, you know, you've heard the, the scuttlebutt going around Ottawa and I guess right around the country, I guess, the last couple of days. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of speculation, even yesterday morning, as the prime minister was getting set to, to address the, the nation again, uh, that he was going to invoke the Emergencies Act at that time. But, but having just explained what you did here about provincial responsibility versus what the federal can do, uh, it, it seems almost redundant. In other words, you know, since Premier Ford's already declared a state of emergency, uh, you know, I guess a number of provinces have already done that right now. Every that's, single province has done that. Right that's that. Now. So Every that's what that's where the real power lays, really, to say, okay, we're going to do this or we're going to shut this down. Yeah, I think you could argue that, and I, I've been talking to some and listening to some lawyers and experts, and they they say exactly that. Here's an example. I don't know if you, I think it was just over the weekend. So this is something that the province of Ontario did under the Emergency Act. It basically suspended the collective agreements for uh, nurses and other healthcare workers. So if a hospital administrator needed to fill a position in a ward, and in normal times he has to post a notice and wait so many days, and you know, because that's what the collective agreement says in terms of filling a vacancy, well, that's out the window. I mean, the administrator just fills it. Just You get it. Uh, rules in a collective agreement about which wards a nurse or a doctor might work on, just do it. It's, that's all been suspended. And that's the Ontario government invoking emergency powers that it has to do, in this case, to suspend the provisions of a collective agreement. They'll be back in force once the emergency is over. But there's a good example of a province saying, this is what we, we need to do. Uh, yesterday, the Quebec government invoked its emergency powers to say, right, we're shutting down every single shopping mall in, in the province. Mm-hmm. That is something that, that certainly uh, Premier Ford has that power right now to do. He, he, can, he can do that. Um, you know, in B- in British Columbia, we saw pictures were running around on social media yesterday of, you know, people hanging out at, at one of the popular beaches in downtown Vancouver. Well, today, uh, you know, the city of Vancouver is asking for powers from the province, which you can get to say, we're shutting it all down and anybody on a beach is going to get arrested. 
So again, uh, provinces have all these powers, and I guess it's maybe a, a situation for communicating that provinces are doing these things. They are acting as they with the power they have, and maybe you know, if it, uh, I live on the essentially Ottawa is on the Ontario Quebec border. If you're going to shut down a shopping mall in Quebec, should the shopping mall on the other side of the river here in Ottawa should it be shut down too? Uh, so maybe those are some of the coordination questions for the premiers to get to. But as they say, the provinces have these powers, and certainly in Ontario. Premier Ford's been using them. David, very quick, i got about a minute or so left here, and I know you got to jump out here, too. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about getting the military involved, and not, not in a, as they say, in a marshalling area, but mm-hmm. from medical help, medical assistance. There is some expertise there, uh, you know, hospitals and things of this nature. Uh, I know the Prime Minister keeps saying all things are on the table. Is that going to be part of the discussion with the Premiers today? It, it, it's there already. and uh, it, like In other words, the federal government would not order the Army into a particular area to help out. It's up to, as it always is, like whenever there's a flood or some other kind of emergency, the local authority, a province, says to the feds, hey, we need some help from the armed forces. And it usually happens like, yes, of course, done. So what is, and I can tell you, the Canadian forces are preparing for a call for help. And absolutely, medical backup is one of those things. You know, the Canadian forces are engineers standing by ready to build, say, temporary field hospitals, should that be needed. Um, Let's say a fire hall in, uh, you know, a fire hall goes down because uh, some firefighters catch it, and you have to quarantine a fire hall. Well, the CF has a bunch of firefighters ready and standing to man that fire hall. Uh, should they should that be required? So the CF has had has plans in place and is ready to go. It's really just would be waiting for the province to say for a province or a region to say, "Hey, we need some help, and can you send in the army?" And absolutely, the federal government would go right, send in the army, no problem. Uh, David, always great to get your insight into this, and th- thanks for all the work and the research you've done on this. We'll be uh, watching for you on Global National later on today, uh, as per usual, and uh, stay in touch and stay healthy. Stay in touch, stay healthy, absolutely. Bill, cheers. Take care. David Aiken, of course, Chief Political Correspondent. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some of us go back to work. Uh, not all of us, of course, can work at home. There are a lot of concerns about workplace and about the virus itself and, and how workers can protect themselves and, and what we can do. As individuals, we've been, you know, I have, and I know everybody else at the radio station has been receiving dozens of emails and, and tweets over the last couple of weeks uh, from community members asking questions about uh, workplaces and what we can do and should we be uh, uh, ordered to do this and that and what's the company doing to try to you know increase our safety, etc. So I want to bring uh, Clive Thurston into the conversation. Clive is the president of the Ontario General Contractors Association, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Clive, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you for having us on. We appreciate it. Well, life goes on for some people. I mean, you know, things still have to be built. Things still have to be purchased. The shelves have to be stocked. There's a lot of work needs to be done. Uh, But understandably, a lot of people are concerned about the workplace and what they can do and what the workplace is going to do to make them safe. Absolutely. And it's something we've been taking very seriously for weeks. And I can assure you that not only here in Ontario, but across the country, Associations like ours, partnered with many other associations, have been working nonstop to provide that safety and to find better ways to protect our sites. And we have moved as quickly as humanly possible and to do that in getting more safety protocols out. Just this weekend, in cooperation with the Infrastructure Health and Safety Association, we released a new, new guideline on how to deal with people who've come down with the virus on your sites. Prior to that, we've had protocols out um, and uh, information on how to protect your site, uh, wash stations, hand sanitizing, all of that. Um, you're, anyone, any worker who wants to find out what we're doing can go to the OGCA website. 
It's accessible to everybody, and you'll see all of the latest documentation, recommendations, policies from across the country. There are meetings taking place almost hourly by the industry leaders to address this fact that the safety of our workers is our primary function these days, and nothing should be more important than that. And I can assure you that our members, the employers, are doing everything in their power to make their sites as safe and accessible for workers as we can. Because you're absolutely right. Shutting us down is not the answer. You're only shutting down one sector. What about everybody else? What, what about when we come back? And, and who's going to continue the work that we're doing right now, expanding emergency wards, building treatment places? Like my members are re- and others across the country are out there in hospitals and everything right now trying to help improve facilities and expand facilities for people to be treated in. Clive, I guess the the one that jumps out with a lot of us, and the consistent theme I've gotten from an, an awful lot of people that have contacted me with these questions, is is the concept of social distancing, and, and obviously trying to stay about two meters, six, seven feet away from each other. Uh, some situations that's very doable, but a lot of these contracting situations that you've just discussed here, how do you how do you try to maintain that? It, you're you're perfectly right. It is a concern, and we're doing what we can on the sites to stagger the workers so that they're not. When you're finishing a building, you could have electricians, plumbers, millwork, drywallers all in there at the same time. What we're recommending is that that work be staggered so as few people are in the floor or in the confined area as possible to reduce that kind of connection. And of course, all of the normal uh, personal protection equipment is there. Additional hand sanitizing and all of that to help protect those workers and reduce the risk to the greatest degree that we can. So those those are policies and programs that our members are implementing in cooperation with their trades. And uh, it's not easy, but we're everybody is striving to meet that without causing a major catastrophe to the economy by shutting this industry down. How do you handle, for instance, well, literally handle things like tools? I mean, you know, we're told, for instance, if I go to the grocery store, uh, I should get a sanitizer mm-hmm. and, and wipe the, uh, you know, the the, the the shopping cart before I start putting my hands on it. Uh, your workers, I mean, you know, they're, they're hands-on people, literally, uh, with situations yeah. like that. And is there a concern of that, about contamination of some of the tools? Do you wipe them down before they get used? That is absolutely a recommendation. Very few workers share their tools with another worker. Mm-hmm. That may sound like a simple thing, but trust me, as a former superintendent, you don't touch another worker's tools, period, even in, the, even in times where there isn't a virus going around. So everybody maintains their own tools. They are very careful about that, and they don't share tools to the degree that, that one might think. Everybody has their own set of tools, and they maintain them. So that, I, I, it's kind of a self-policing situation then. Exactly. Exactly. What are you hearing from your workers, from uh, from the, the the people on the ground that are involved in these jobs now? Are are they concerned about going to work? Certainly, we 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 are receiving those concerns, but overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the majority are telling us try and stay open. They know the importance of our industry to the economy, maintaining the supply chain, maintaining the infrastructure that delivers everything that you need to survive. And I would say. Absolutely. The majority of responses we're getting is try and keep us working. Try and keep us out there. Do, do what you can. Work to keep us safe. 
but keep us going because we know how important it is to keep going. The, the impact of shutting this one sector down without shutting down all other sectors is not going to make any difference in, in our opinion. And I'm not a doctor, but it's just common sense. Why, why shut one sector down and allow many others to continue? Makes no sense. Well, and this is about the survival of our industry. Well, and it's the interrelation between all of this stuff, too. I mean, you just talked about some of yeah. the projects that are ongoing right now. If we shut this down, uh, who's going to do that work? The work still has to be done, especially it has to be done in, in some of the environments you've just talked about, because those are the places where, where the research is going on or the care is being given to the people that already have the virus. Absolutely. If there's a site that is not safe, shut it down. We'd be the first ones to say that. Clive? So it has to be done that way. Clive, we'll stay in touch as this develops. I appreciate your time and the effort that uh, that you and uh, the folks at the uh, General Contractors Association are doing on this. Uh, stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you very much, Bill. Anytime. Take care. Clive Thurston, of course, president of the Ontario uh, General Contractors Association. Uh, a lot of families are concerned about this, and a lot of families are concerned about uh, their loved ones going off to work in what they consider to be uh, rather precarious situations these days, and that's quite understandable. One of those is, uh, well, we'll call her Tara. We'll give last names here, but uh, she is a, a local mother and, and uh, very concerned about what's happening with her family. And uh, we've asked her to hop on for a couple of minutes to the program to explain this. Tara, thank you for joining us. I'm glad you could be on the air today. Hi, thanks for having me. Talk to us about your situation and, and why you're so concerned about this. So, um, obviously, my husband, he is in the trades. Um, so, he's been going to work still regularly. Um, so, for me, I have two young kids. I have a two-year-old and an eight-month-old baby. And I'm also going through current testing uh, for myself because I've been having some health issues. So um, I, I'm going to be seeing an immunologist. So there's a potential for me that I'm currently um, compromised, my immune system. Um, so obviously, you know, for us, um, social distancing has been a big part of like our daily practice at home. Um, like me and my kids, we've been living in isolation for almost two weeks now, but our uh, family unit is a single unit. So if my husband's putting himself at risk every day, we're all at risk. Um, which is basically for me, that's the case for every family who's connected to this line of work. Um, and like really in the short history of this virus, it's proved that small social chains can become large very quickly. Oh yeah. Um, one worker goes in and spreads it to five other people who go home to go home to their families who become ill. And I mean, who knows who they have contact with? Is it neighbors or is someone's wife, um, healthcare worker? Who knows? Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's such a large industry with so many workers. Um, many of which have families. And the question is, is can we really afford to risk it? Well, well, we can in my house, but I mean, can we risk it as a province of the country? Um, I mean, from what I'm seeing on the media and from what I'm hearing from, you know, the government press conferences, um, the only way to combat the virus is through social distancing. But, mm -hmm. I mean, is that something that's possible when these people are working in close proximity on job sites? Well, is it, um, is it in your husband's situation? Is he, is he working in close proximity to other workers? Um, so in his current situation, yeah, there's moments in the day where he's, he's crossing paths and he's close with people. Um, there's other job sites that he's been on in the past and that he has other um, guys that he's worked with in the past who are working in close proximity. Um, my brother, he's also in the trades. Um, he's working in a big shop right now, and there's probably 40, 50 guys in there. And yes, they, they do work in close proximity. There's times in the day where, yes, everyone has their own personal tools, but there are um, company tools that have to be shared and that people don't have for themselves. 
and therefore, you know, more than one set of hands are on those. Are they being sanitized and wiped down in between? I mean, I guess that's something that we have to question. Is everyone doing that? Probably not. Is so, your how did how's your husband feel about this? I mean, obviously he's concerned about you and, and the kids. That's that's a, a, a given, and we get that. But does he feel nervous going to work every day because of of the exposure that could be there? Yes, he does, and he's expressed to me that other people that he works with feel the same way. They've had the conversation. They've talked about it. Um, he's talked to other guys over the phone who are on different job sites, and he's talked to a great number of people who, at this point, are very concerned. I mean, we've declared you know, a state of emergency. Um, I mean, we've listened to endless press conferences from medical professionals um, stating how dangerous this virus is. Like, it's not a common cold. It's not the flu. There's no vaccine. You know, young, healthy people are getting very sick and, and some even dying. And yeah, there are, and certainly there are people who are in situations who are saying, you know, no, I'll risk it. I want to, I want to keep making money. But he says there are a great deal of guys who, think that these job sites should be shut down and that they shouldn't be coming to work every day. And I mean, not to say that it's not an essential service. At the end of the day, I think everything is essential, like to make the world go round. But I mean, is, I don't know, the infrastructure for a new condo building right now the most essential thing in, in Canada? Probably not. I would say things like um, keeping our frontline workers probably more essential. And can we really do that when we have thousands of, of people going out to work every day and, and not being able to practice social distancing? Well, from what I've gathered from the data, no. Well, and I guess different uh, trades can do different things. I, I know in our particular case, for instance, I mean, we had to have some work on our, our cable guy had to come right. and it would not come in the house. I uh, said, that's right. the new policy during this thing. And uh, that's understandable. We get that. But in your husband's situation, I mean, you're, you know, if he's working in a, a, a building doing renovations or something like this, I mean, you got to go where the job is, right? Exactly. And I mean, there's, there's sites where there's dozens and dozens of people working together and I mean things need to be lifted and it takes more than one guy to do it and um, you know big tools need to be shared Um, there's you know portable washrooms on site that aren't being necessarily cleaned so you know are they stressing that people take these precautions sure but are people that's another question right like there's still people showing up to work and you know they're coughing or they're sneezing or or, you know, they're potentially contagious with this virus and they haven't even showed symptoms yet. And, I mean, all of the data has shown that this virus can be transmitted before you even show symptoms. So, I mean, it's hard It's hard for me to sit here when every press conference I see and every medical professional is, is on TV saying, you know, having a friend over for coffee is a major risk. And I agree, it is. I'm not doing that. And, and I'm abiding by that fully in my own household but then I'm looking at the bigger picture and thinking but it's okay to put you know more than 50 guys on a job site together it just it doesn't really seem to uphold that, that well it's it's fear, it's fear of the unknown I mean as, as we've talked about and I guess we've all watched these news conferences and while these medical experts are giving us all of this advice uh, you know the in many cases of course that there's a 14-day incubation period I mean you know you could be a carrier and not even know you're a carrier uh, you could be a carrier and have some of the symptoms, uh, you know, just, oh, I just got a bad cough. Well, that actually might be. You don't know if you don't get tested. And uh, you're in a rather precarious situation right now with your immune system and such. Uh, uh, what's what's the end game here? Is your husband just going to stick this out and, and just hope for the best? 
Um, I, I don't know. Like for us, I don't really know if that's going to be an option. I mean, we have two little kids and, you know, with my health issues that are going on right now, is health more important to us? And it certainly it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for other families, I don't know. I just think it's sad. I mean, the situation in Spain and Italy and California, like the list goes on, like the message has been clear. Um, extreme measures need to be taken early. Um, like, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think that unfortunately we're a reactive society often. I mean, we have taken steps, of course, but have we taken enough steps? I don't know. I don't I think, think so. I don't think so. I don't so. think we have. I think it's a slow approach. And is it going to take the collapse of our healthcare system to shut everything down? Sadly, it might. And I think, you know, regardless, we're saying we need to keep the economy going. We need to keep these people at work. Well, they're not going to be working if they all end up sick and they're all sick for two weeks and they're all in isolation. And in the end of the day, it's going to do more damage because not only are we going to have nobody at work, we're going to have all these people in need of health care in hospitals and we're not going to be able to, you know, handle that. So is it kind of, to me, more of, a lose-lose situation? Yes, it is. To have these people at work, it's more of a lose-lose situation. Tara, we thank you for the email uh, and and for getting in touch with us. And uh, we're so sympathetic to your situation. I want to wish you all the best uh, with your particular situation, of course. I hope things go well with the test that you're uh, you're about to undergo. Uh, And I hope you guys all stay healthy. Would you please stay in touch with us, though, and let us know how this progresses? For sure. Yep. I'd love to. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for this today, Tara. And stay healthy. Uh, a typical story of, of many that we've heard and uh, been uh, apprised of over the last little while. Families are having a rough time dealing with this, and that's quite understandable. Uh, the social isolation is one thing, but going into a work environment where you could be exposed is somewhat problematic, especially, and this is what I've been talking about for quite some time, people that have predisposed issues like this and in her situation. No wonder they're, they're frightened about this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.